Welcome to On The Ledge, the podcast that puts the culture back into indoor horticulture. I'm your host, Jane Perone, and this week we will begin with a begonia. Yes, it's the long-awaited begonia episode. I'm joined by Steve Rosenbaum of Texas Nursery Steve's Leaves to find out all about these wonderful foliage plants. And I'm answering a question about witch's fingers. Yes, the Sansevieria cylindrica. Thanks to Shopper1961 and Nico, the Foothill Guru, who both left reviews for On The Ledge on Apple Podcasts and said very nice things about me, which is always a lovely way to start the day. And I also want to send a shout out to Belsie, who is a new On The Ledge patron this week, and to Laura, who gave a one-off donation on co-fi.com. I don't mention this very often, but you can leave a one-off donation if you'd rather not donate monthly. You can do that via the website co-fi.com. Details in my show notes, as always. And you know what? I'd also urge people to look at the $1 donation on Patreon. Not many people go for this option. And yet for $12 a year, you could really make a difference to On The Ledge in helping the show to grow. So do take a look at my show notes to find out all those ways to support the show. And do keep on leaving those lovely reviews, people. It's a brilliant way to help other people find the show and convince them to give it a try. Thanks for the feedback on the Houseplant Health Check episode. One thing that listener Jenny mentioned on the Facebook group Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge was that I didn't mention earthworms. And she was asking if anyone else was having uh, problems with earthworms and wondering whether they do any harm to plants. Well, the good news, Jenny, is they're not going to harm your plants in the slightest. They don't eat fresh plant material. They'll only eat things that are already rotting. They will, of course, be making worm casts. A telltale sign that you have worms is if you get sort of little brown piles of dirt underneath the pot when you lift it up they're not really going to do any harm you you may be more bothered with them if they're in a terrarium where you can see them squelching about I mean ideally you do want to get them out of the pot because over a long period they may run out of organic material to work on the only way you can really do this is by taking the plant out of the pot putting it on a tarp and just locating those worms and taking them outside to some soil they will last a long time on a small amount of food but eventually if they do run out of food they will pass on but I mean that's going to take months and months and months I wouldn't worry about the worms in your terrarium they're going to be fine for until the next time you need to take that terrarium apart they'll be absolutely fine when I was a child I had a massive fish tank aquarium because I didn't know any better I used garden soil and ended up with a lot of worms in there uh, and they were absolutely fine but as I say next time you do a little bit of a rejig on that uh, that terrarium you can always uh, remove them then oh hang on sorry phone's ringing let me just get this hello Yes, yes, I am getting on with the Begonia episode. It's it's coming very shortly. Yes, 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 it's coming. Steve, Steve Rosenbaum, yes. Okay, okay, bye. Right, well, I think it's become clear that you're pretty desperate for some Begonia information. So here goes. As is often the case, Steve Rosenbaum and I had so much to talk about that I'm splitting this interview across two episodes. 
So coming up in this episode, we're discovering the different groups that begonias fall under. Yes, it's a very large genus and getting some general care tips for those tricky rexes and other members of the begonia clan. My guest this week, Steve Rosenbaum, has been running Steve's Leaves for many years. He got into terrariums in the 1970s and started his business when he was just 18. He sells thousands of different varieties of tropical plants, including a heck of a lot of lovely begonias. So he was just the kind of person I needed to talk to to get some good advice on these plants, which not all of us find that easy. First off, I wanted to find out why he thinks begonias are undergoing such a renaissance. I think there is, but I think there is a general interest in uh, plants uh, that uh, things are cyclical. And uh, this is the most interest I've seen since the 1970s. Uh, but yeah, begonias are, uh, to me, a, a really fascinating group of plants. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to exactly know why but they just kind of speak to me when I look at them and I see all the different amazing textures and colors and uh, especially the foliage I, uh, the flowers are nice too but uh, I just think they're it's such a varied group and that's one of the things that attracts me and they're pretty easy to propagate and uh, I always think that uh, it's good to get people to propagate their plant. I have other people in the industry go, oh, no, you don't want people growing their own plants and they won't buy as many. Well, you know what? If people get hooked by propagating their plants, they're just going to want more plants. They're going to end up buying more later on. So I'm happy to help people with uh, with propagation as well. I'm really glad to hear that because I think that really is a false idea that if you teach someone to propagate that they're not going <laughs> to, they're never going to buy anything new again. I think it's the exact opposite. As you get deeper in, you you then can't resist buying a load of, uh, of more begonias. As you've said, it's quite a big genus can we just start out by talking about some of the different categories of begonias that we grow as houseplants? Because there are a few different groupings. Um, how, how do we divide these up when we're thinking about the different types of begonias we can grow indoors? Some people divide begonias into eight groups based on their growth habit. And the funny thing is there's hybrids between the various groups. So it's, it's, uh, you know, they're man-made, like any kind of man-made category like that. Uh, there are going to be, um, plants that kind of are in between groups, but, uh, to run through the, uh, the eight different, uh, types of begonias, there's cane-like, which a lot of people, uh, uh, start with canes and a lot of people are successful with cane-like begonias. A similar, to me, similar group are the shrub-like begonias. Uh, so there are canes and shrubs. Then there's thick-stemmed begonias. Um, uh, some people like those. I don't think they're as uh, common or as popular. Uh, probably the most planted uh, group of begonias are the semperflorens. And those are the sometimes called wax begonias or the, the ones used as bedding plants out in uh, you know mass plantings outside. Uh, there are some um, interesting semperflorens that can be grown indoors that are collector's items, but most of the semperflorens are just grown uh, as a bedding plant. Uh, then uh, one of my favorite groups is, are the rhizomatous begonias, and uh, and then there are um, the rex begonias, which uh, are more colorful but a little more challenging, and a lot of the rexes are rhizomatous, most of them are. Uh, then there's tuberous. So tuberous is probably the group I have the least experience with. And I know there are wonderful growers of 
tuberous begonias in the UK and other places in the world. Uh, but we're in Texas and they just don't like the heat. So we steer clear of tuberous begonias. And then the final group are the trailing scandent uh, begonias, which are the ones that make great hanging baskets. So there's plenty of choice for everybody when it comes to picking a begonia. I think, the, as you've said there, though, one of the groups there that is the trickiest are the Rex begonias, but they're also the ones that people tend to fall for because they're just so gorgeous looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody was starting out with begonias as a houseplant, is there any sort of cast iron begonia that you could recommend that is the easiest for somebody who doesn't have much experience with this genus? Well, I think some of the cane-like and shrub-like begonias are uh, are much easier for people. The humidity requirements are a little lower. Um, and then also some of the rhizomatists, there are some cultivars that have been out for, you know, since the 1800s and uh, in species as well that were uh, discovered back then that are easy to grow. Um, as far as to address what you're saying about the rexes, uh, usually on the rexes, uh, I find that people people send us pictures all the time and they have brown edges and they're not giving them enough humidity. So humidity is, is the big problem with the rexes. And of course, you have to give them the proper lighting and watering as well. And what's the best way of delivering that humidity? Because one of the things that I'm sort of often arguing with people about is misting, whether people think that by misting a plant, you know, a couple of times a week, that's making a difference to humidity. Does misting help Rex begonias or are there better ways of of increasing humidity around the plant? So this is not based on scientific experiments. My personal thought is misting... um, uh, doesn't do much for the plant, but I know I've known of people who really enjoy misting their plants. It's kind of an activity they do with their plants, so they like uh, mm. doing that. So it's to me, it's more uh, something that the humans enjoy doing. But I don't think it it it's going to increase the humidity unless you're going to do it like every ten minutes, twenty four hours a day. Um, it's it's just not going to you know misting once or twice a day is not going to add that much humidity. Uh, some people buy humidifiers. Um, uh, one of my favorites, if you have the location for it and you have one of the right size, are uh, terrariums because that raises humidity. Uh, of course, greenhouses are, are a wonderful way to do it. Um, a lot of the, the varieties, they say, can only be grown in ter- a terrarium. We find we can grow in the lower humidity. In, the humidity in the greenhouses is higher than in the home, but it's lower than in um a terrarium and some of them will make the transition uh, in the greenhouse. I mean, I suppose the other thing is maybe just putting them in rooms in the house where humidity is likely to be higher, the kitchen or the bathroom, maybe where there's a naturally higher level of humidity. Also, some people, their favorite way to do it, and this is also involves grouping them, is to take a, the, uh, a tray of pebbles and add water. The, the important thing there is to not have the plants sitting in the water. They're sitting on top of the pebbles and the water is only about halfway up. And as it evaporates off the pebbles, it releases humidity. And then if you group the plants, that helps uh, quite a bit to me, much more than uh, misting. I also wonder whether when you are misting and putting moisture onto those leaves, whether that sometimes can have a detrimental effect in terms of if the plant's a little bit cold and it's wet, whether that's encouraging mildew and things like that to form as well. 
I don't know if that's a cause of powdery mildew or whether that's that's not related at all. But I know that's another problem that people have with 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 Rex is, is problems with with mildew. I don't know if you can shed any light on that. Mm-hmm. Having free water, as they would call it, uh, on the leaves can be detrimental. Uh, we grow, we start all of our plants under a mist system that keeps the foliage uh, damp. And uh, so it's not a death sentence because if so, if that was the case, every plant under a mist system would die. So uh, you can get the leaves wet, but it is kind of a no-no for growing plants to, you don't want that free moisture, you know, on the leaf. You just want the humidity higher without having uh, an actual wet leaf if possible. So it, it can be a problem. Some people would argue it more than I would. Uh, I'm just going by my uh, experience. If it's a mindfulness activity misting, then it can be good, but I don't think it's necessarily going to be the ultimate answer for um, humidity issues. What what else is going wrong with begonia rexes then? Yeah, I was hoping we'd get back to that. I need to know. I need answers. I've killed quite a few of these plants over the years. I've currently got one uh, that is doing okay, but sometimes it just seems inexplicable. Suddenly it'll drop all his leaves and I think... What's happened? Why Why am I in this situation yet again? Are there triggers for plants responding in that way, dropping all their leaves? Because that seems to be how mine end up going. So the rexes are hybrids, except the original rex, and there's not even agreement on with scholars on which one's the actual original rex. Uh, but uh, all the rexes came from that original plant uh, crossing. Uh, at some point, it has that rex blood in its uh in its uh, history. And so they do have a wide variety. So it depends on what they've been crossed with, I guess is where I'm going with that. So when I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager, I grew Rexes in uh, in the heat in Texas. Um, They would go dormant. And uh, I thought, well, that's just what they do. And some people have them go dormant in cool weather, but I couldn't keep it cool enough, even though I had cooling in my greenhouse at the time when I was a teenager. But what I found eventually was uh, it depended on what they were crossed with. And so if they were crossed with a tuberous or semi-tuberous somewhere along the line, then they are going to go dormant in the heat. Uh, we have a hybridization program. We strive to have begonias that do not go dormant. Uh, and that will tolerate the heat. And uh, and it could be if, if in the wintertime they're going dormant, you may need to give them a little higher uh, temperature. You know, I prefer at, at the minimum uh, low 60s Fahrenheit. I guess that would be about 17 degrees would be uh, low 60s. And it's even better if you can do, you know, about 20 degrees would be uh, uh, even better. Uh, or, or upper 60s uh, Fahrenheit. That's an interesting point that oftentimes I think, looking back, that my dead in inverted commas rex was actually probably just dormant and i could have revived it um (laughs) how do you know the difference is there any way to tell whether a plant's other than just leaving it to revive whether a plant's actually dead or whether it's just undergoing dormancy yeah it's pretty easy to tell well there are some tuberous varieties that will go dormant and uh they'll die back to the tuber because that's what they do in nature and uh, so those you'd have to kind of dig up or poke your finger down, see if you feel a firm uh, bulb or tuber down in the uh, soil. Uh, but for the rhizomatous and, you know, the uh, rexes, 
you it's very simple if it's got has a rhizome on top of the soil you just squeeze that rhizome gently and if it's nice and firm then the plant's still alive even though there aren't any leaves if it's mushy or has dried out then yeah it's it's a lost cause and what's the best way of getting a plant out of dormancy is it just a question a waiting game until a, a new season rolls around spring comes and the plant will start to shoot or is there anything you can do to to keep it keep it ticking over until that point. Well, we're still talking about rexes and rhizomatous begonias. Uh, I would, for one thing, look at the temperature to see if it is getting too cold, and I would uh, try not to let it go dormant. Keep it warm enough, and if you're having problems because of, uh, of what it was crossed with then maybe try some other varieties that are better suited to your growing conditions. Is it possible to easily discover what your the, the history of your Rex begonia is? I mean, is there information out there? Should it be on the label? Or is it a question of kind of searching around for information about its heritage? Uh, the best uh, way to find out would be there's an international begonia database. And it's not perfect, but it's the best I know out there. There's a gentleman uh, who is in charge of that named uh, Ross Ballwell from Australia. He does a wonderful job of trying because he saw a need for having a place where where you can look up what the parents are and information about begonias. Uh, That's a great place to go. Well, I'd like to to also mention, uh, besides the humidity with the rexes, there are also other things. Uh, watering is so critical. The watering and the light are very important. So um, uh, some people keep things tend to keep plants too wet. Some keep them too dry. Um, I usually, from being busy, I tended to keep tend to keep things too dry. Uh, but my employees in the greenhouse they like to keep things a little too wet. So I'm always trying to get them to pull back on the watering. Um, and uh, but indoors, uh, when you're growing your plants in your home. Uh, you do, to me, the best way to do it is let the soil surface dry and then water thoroughly and have, um, make sure you have drain holes and let some of that water come out the bottom of the pot. And, uh, I, and then that way, if you're letting the soil surface, uh, say a half inch, three quarters of an inch down dry, uh, there are a couple of things. One is you'll have fewer fungus gnats because they require constantly moist soil. Um, to have uh, fungus gnats and shore flies, little annoying pests that live in the top layer of the soil. If that dries out, you're much less likely to have them. But also, um, some people tell me, well, they keep their begonias evenly moist, and that works for them. But to me, I've always said it's a slippery slope between um, constantly moist to thoroughly saturated and too wet. So it's, I think it's best to let the soil surface dry than water thoroughly. And that way you're not likely to let it get too too keep too wet or let it totally dry out. What about the type of water that you're using? I tend to be a bit of a a bit of a stickler on this and I tend to water almost all my houseplants with rainwater because I have a supply of it. But does it make a difference whether you're using water from the tap or rainwater or water from some other kind of source? It can definitely make a difference. Uh, we just use the our local city water and it works fine for us. Um, there's nothing all that special about it, but it, it does the job. Um, uh, I know some people will collect rainwater, as you mentioned, and some will go as far as using reverse osmosis water and uh, to water their plants uh, if your water quality is bad enough. Uh, but rainwater is, is a good uh, choice. But 
it you know it's probably not the water but if you if you have a known issue uh you can always have your water tested as well uh but if you have a known issue then you may have to go another direction than just the water that comes out of the faucet let's just talk a little bit about light i know you brought that up um i imagine that i mean begonias possibly fall into the very large category of houseplants that like that strange thing that is that is bright indirect light as in no direct sun but lots of light <laughs> am, I, am i right there are there are there begonias that can survive in shadier spots or sunnier spots um I agree with it, with what you just said about uh, bright indirect light. Um, because it's such a, a broad group, um, some of them can take quite bright light. Some of them can take uh, full sun, especially some of the semperflorins are grown in full sun. Uh, but some of them will take full sun in some, some uh, types of climates, but not uh, where I'm at in Texas. Uh, they'll burn up if you put them in full sun in the summer. So it also depends where you're located because it's not just the light. The temperature plays a role as well. You get high light and high temperature. It can uh, do them in. Uh, but yes, uh, bright and direct, and it's it's kind of hard to quantify. I've heard people try. Some people measure it as a par light or um, foot candles, um, but most people don't have meters to check those things. But yeah, if you have some experience with plants, you'll know uh, the plants kind of have built-in light meters in them. If the leaves scorch, then you have too much uh, light on them. Kind of joking about this yesterday, talking about, yeah, when you see uh, little trails of smoke uh, coming off the leaf, uh, you probably are, they're burning. But yeah, but so they'll scorch in too much light. And if they're getting uh, leggy, spindly indoors, uh, that again, that, to me, that's a built-in light meter, the, the growth over time, we'll show you. Uh, it's like, oh, when I first got this plant, it was nice and stocky, and now it's all leaning toward the window, and it's, you know, looks like it's struggling. And if it's a, a cane or shrub type, and it has upright stem, there's the the nodes, and then what they call the internodes. The the internode areas get too long. That's the plant telling you it needs more light. And and that's, I guess, is is why it's just so important to keep a really close eye on your plant, particularly when it's something that you treasure and and you can react to how it how it's reacting. Thanks to Steve for joining me this week and I'll be back with Steve next week for more Begonia chat, including answering some of the questions that listeners posed via the Facebook group. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And now it's time for question of the week. This one came from Nikki and she wants to know about Sansevieria cylindrica, the plant known as Witch's Fingers, aka African Spear. She's noticed that when she's taking cuttings of this plant, the new pups grow out as flat plants. Are these then not natural? 
And she's wondering if there's some kind of plastic mould involved, like uh, the fruit that they produce in Japan, you know, those kind of square melons and all that kind of thing. Great question, Nikki, and I can understand why you're confused. So if you can't quite picture this plant, well, it's a succulent with dappled dark green and pale green leaves that are cylinder shaped uh, and pointed. So often because those stems are quite flexible, you'll often find them being sold in a plaited form or sometimes you'll find there's just a few of these spears sticking out of the pot. There's all kinds of different variations of how this plant is sold. But some people do get quite surprised when they see new leaves coming through and they don't look round. Instead, they are flat. And I do love the idea of lots of tube-shaped moulds of Sansevieria cylindrica growing in a nursery, but I'm pleased to say, Nikki, that actually this is a completely natural thing. So the leaves start off immature as, as flat. So if you do take a cutting, the leaves that come through will be flat. Uh, but gradually, uh, by a form of magic, they gradually become cylindrical uh, as the leaves mature. And if you check out the show notes, I'll link to some photos that show immature leaves uh, and the process of how they get to their mature state. I mean, it's a very common thing for leaves to start out slightly differently than how they end up. It's, you know, like a monstra deliciosa. When the leaf first unfurls, it's almost like a butterfly coming out of the chrysalis. It takes a while for it to become fully coloured and to sort of fully pump up and take on its full size. And I guess it's a bit like that with the Sansiferia cylindrica leaves. They just take a while to take on their true form. And I guess the other question is, why are the leaves like this in the first place? Well, it's an adaptation that many succulents have to have fleshy leaves to cope with water shortages. Um, I would guess that having a cylindrical leaf reduces the surface area quite considerably compared to a flat leaf. So the plant is losing less water tr transpiration. I would guess, and this is a complete guess, that that means that they can cope with more drought than, say, flat leaf sansevarias. But that's just a theory. I don't actually have any evidence of that. Bear in mind that certain cultivars of Sansevieria won't come true in terms of colour when you make leaf cuttings. They, they revert to their natural state. So if you've got something like a, one of my wishlist plants, which I don't yet own, uh, I'm not bitter whatsoever, <laughs> um, is Bantel sensation. So if you take leaf cuttings of that rather than divisions, you'll find that they don't look like the parent plant. So that is something to be aware of with these plants. I hope that has helped, Nikki. And if you've got a question for On The Ledge, you know what to do. Drop me a line at onthelegepodcast at gmail.com and I shall endeavour to help. Photos are always really useful, as is tons of information about your plant and what's been happening to it. rounds up this week's show i shall be back next friday with begonias part two can't wait so i shall see you then have a great week bye The music you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops. A Man Approaches with Bode Sitar Rishikesh by Samuel Corwin. And Enthusiast by Tours. All these tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janeperone.com for details. <laughs>